I just think too often we get people who get exposed to a new philosophy and they pivot instantly. And if you're a client or an athlete, you walk in and you're like, so everything we've been doing for the last six months was terrible now? Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'm joined on the line today by the Eric Cressy. Now, here's a serious question. What has Eric not accomplished in his career? He's the president of Cressy Sports Performance, which is, in my opinion, the premier baseball-specific training facility in the world. He's the director of player health and performance for the New York Yankees. And of course, he's a published author, internationally renowned speaker, and the host of the Elite Baseball Development Podcast. But perhaps most importantly to me, Eric is somebody that I consider a friend and someone that I've grown up in this industry alongside, and I couldn't be happier to see his success. And, of course, to get him back on the podcast this week. Now, in this episode, I really wanted to hone in on the journey of a coach and highlight the ups and downs we all go through in our career. And while we do talk some X's and O's training at the end, I think you're going to love hearing what really makes Eric Cressy tick and what's turned him into the coach he is today. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll jump into this awesome new episode with my guy, Eric Cressy. Did you know that in any given year, 40% of the trainers and coaches in our industry will leave our industry? Maybe that's why it seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, let me tell you how I can help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you. People who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 plus years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In the cert, you'll learn how to use my R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. You'll learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym to help your clients squat, hinge, press, and pull with awesome technique. You'll learn my streamlined assessment process that will help you determine the exact movements your clients should be performing when they come in the gym. And last but not least, you'll learn how to create relationships and build rapport with virtually everyone you train so you can get the best possible results. Of course, there's a lot more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the CERT is all about. Now, here's the thing. Spots for the CERT only open twice per year for a limited time. But if you join my free insiders list now, you'll be able to save $200 when my next group opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, that's completecoachcertification.com. And then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support. And I hope you'll join us when the next Complete Coach Certification launches. Eric, man, thank you so much for coming on the show here today. Super excited to have you on and just reconnect. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Can't remember how long it's been since I, I was on here. I think this might be my third cameo, maybe fourth. I'm not sure. We've been. Yeah, we've it's been a few for sure. 
Yeah. The brief version is I co-founded Cressy Sports Performance. We have training facilities in both Hudson, Massachusetts and Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. And that is something that's largely focused in the baseball industry where we have not just strength conditioning, but we also have manual therapy, uh, pitching and hitting skill development. We have analytics, uh, we have physical therapists on site in both facilities. And so there's a lot of moving parts um, with both those facilities. Um, additionally, I serve as director of player health and performance for the New York Yankees. Um, so in that role, I oversee uh, strength conditioning and nutrition uh, across our organization, which you know, at most times is over 300 players in multiple countries <laughs> all over the place. And I do some writing, some speaking, some product creation. I have a podcast of my own as well. So uh, on top of that, dad and husband have, have three daughters and a very patient wife, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I don't know how you do it all, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, sure. And I think I looked, I think you're, I think this is probably your fifth time total. Nice. I would be shocked if it's not at least four or five. Yeah. You're definitely up there. I'm so sold. I'm it's probably it. been, <laughs> <laughs> so I know it's been at least a year or two, which is too long, but what's new in your world? What it, what's been going on since the last time we chatted? Yeah, for sure. To be honest, I don't know how, how much is necessarily new. I think there's always like an evolution of, of what you learn yes. and how you do your jobs and get more efficient and things like that. It's actually my fifth year in professional baseball. I want to say I came on maybe in the off season before my third one. So we've been through the highs and the lows. We were American League East champions in 2022, and then we had a rough patch last year. So we've seen both ends of the spectrum on the pro baseball side of things. But certainly at the facility, yeah. it's been an interesting time because we actually are working through a, a pretty big expansion at our Florida location. Just from those things where we moved in there and the end of 2019 and it was like this showcase dream facility and i don't think we did a really good job of anticipating what would happen when our business grew and our staff grew exponentially so yeah. we're actually looking into some pretty hefty expansion projects in conjunction with the city just to give our staff more space to move around and actually have their own offices and then also a chance to expand our offerings and deliver a higher quality product to our athletes yeah that's awesome dude that's awesome and we talked before the show but my focus here with this show, we're definitely going to talk some X's and O's because I would yeah. be remiss to get a guy of your stature and not talk X's and O's. But I also want to talk about the coaching journey a little yeah. bit because you and I are both, you're yeah. over 20 years now, right? Yeah. We've been doing this for a little while. And so what I would love to start with, just super broad, super general, what originally got you into coaching? Because I don't know yeah. if I know. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think like a lot of people, it's like those who can are the athletes and those who can't are the coaches. So <laughs> yes. What's, yeah. what's interesting, I, I was a soccer and tennis player through high school. I always joke, I was a fantastically mediocre athlete. Like my upside was probably maybe an average division two player. I was all state in tennis, all conference in soccer and tennis really blew up my shoulder. It was never something yeah. that was working well and got bad as my senior year rolled around. I, I managed to power through it. I, I worked at a tennis club for you know eight summers growing up and all this stuff, but actually had my sights set more so on playing college soccer just because the shoulder was bad. And I, to be honest, I was a little more passionate about the soccer side of things. Um, I wanted to basically after my senior year, I, I really committed myself. I was known as a player who had good ball skills, understood the game. I grew up around it. I had a brother that was four years older than me. So I, I grew up playing against all his friends, but I was the pudgy kid. Um, didn't really have the yeah. physique for it. Wasn't fast enough to, to basically to play at that next level. So I, I distinctly remember like a period in like late October of my, my senior year where I was like, I need to just do this. I just flipped the switch and started eating differently, training way more, all that stuff, just pushing and pushing. And like anything else, I think it, when you're 17 at the time, like everything works until yeah. it does. And I was a guy, 
our family, we have eating disorders in our history. We have kind of like this very obsessive compulsive way. So I'm a very type A guy. And for me, just kept pushing the bar higher and higher and it transitioned to being like a, you know, actual like eating disorder slash exercise addiction. And I went up losing too much weight after it worked for a while. What's interesting is I actually, I wound up being all state in tennis my senior year in high school. And when they announced all state, I was actually in a hospital and I, I read it in the newspaper that I had been announced. Oh my gosh. Health deteriorated so fast. I had to go through a couple hospitalizations, just not just getting my mind, but getting my body, regaining weight the right way. And that kind of transitioned into my freshman, even sophomore year of college. And I realized as I was going through that, I obviously wasn't playing college soccer as I was trying to just get healthy, but I realized I was very passionate about that and not so much my accounting major that I had pursued. <laughs> so it was a, a two-pronged thing that led me down this path to this industry was getting healthy myself, um, learning how to gain some weight back the right way, paying attention to proper nutrition and diet, and then also taking care of a bum shoulder through that whole process. So I, I'd started my first two years at Babson College, um, like I said, thinking I was going to be an accountant. I went up transferring to the University of New England, which was closer to home. And I was lucky because my, my management credits from Babson were kind of worth their weight in gold wherever I transferred. So I did a double major in sports manager and exercise science. And UNE is the only medical school in Maine. So it's, it's actually a real big blessing in disguise because I had access to gross anatomy and just a lot of higher level offerings in terms of being near PTs, ATCs, OTs. So it was a fringe medical education in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, graduated back in 03. And I got accepted to the University of Connecticut for graduate school, which I was very lucky. I think I was one of two or three master's students accepted that year. It was the number one kinesiology grad program in the country. I pulled a, a good GRE score, I think, out of a hat, luckily, and it, it opened the door for me. And <laughs> what was great about UConn is, is I went there not knowing what I wanted to do in this health and human performance world. It could have been research. It could have been actual strength conditioning. It could have been a lot of different things. And I spent some time volunteering in the lab. Actually, my grad assistantship was funded by the U.S. Army in a, a study that looked at potential countermeasures to prevent stress fractures and basic training recruits. But really what I caught the bug for strength conditioning was I had started doing some writing in this space you know, early on when both of us were contributing on teenage and stuff like that. And one of the graduate assistant strength coaches there was a guy named Rajesh Patel, who was NSCA strength coach of the year last year. Um, yeah. Hockey when they won a national championship. But Brajesh was a year or two older than I was. He was a GA there. And I remember we were in class together and he was like, Hey, I've read some of your stuff. It's really good. If you ever want to come down and hang out, strength edition, let me know. We'd love to have you. We got men's baseball at 5 30 a.m. tomorrow. It was almost like a test in <laughs> hindsight, but I'm like, Yeah, let's yeah. do it. So I showed up and instantly fell in love with it. I was told it was something I realized probably 10 years later how good he was at controlling a room, at using athletes' names, understanding how to position himself. He was dropping external focus cues before I even knew what they were. He probably didn't even know it either, but yeah. it just, to me, was a, a very transformative experience seeing him do his thing and led me to do more volunteer work on the on the strength conditioning side. I was really fortunate to have a great mentor in Chris West, uh, who at the time was really handling men's and women's basketball and soccer. So he had four number one teams in the country in his Oof. weight room. At the time, Andrea Hoodie had just moved on and she had been kind of a brief mentor there. We stayed in touch over the years, but Tina Murray was there as well. She did a great job. She went to Louisville and then yeah. Sacramento Kings, I think now is Pittsburgh Penguins. So it was just a really great place to be at that time. Obviously, we had a great human performance lab with Dr. Kramer and Dr. Marish and Jeff Volick and just incredible people. So I, I look back and it was like an incubator at, at UConn in the early 2000s that gave me a really multifaceted experience and, and ultimately led me to, to want to be in strength conditioning. The baseball niche found me after I left UConn, though. Um, yeah. Just the first guys I worked with in the private sector were baseball players, and 
it snowballed from there. And, and now here we are training guys from all 30 organizations and me overseeing it for one of the, the largest sports brands in the world. Yeah. That's amazing, dude. And of course, Steve, the cat's going to try and make an appearance. Wouldn't be a podcast without Steve. <laughs> one of the things that's interesting, you gloss over it here is this whole idea of writing, but I want to circle back to that for a minute before we yeah. get too far down the timeline, because before there were content creators, they were guys like you and I, they were just like out there writing articles. So I'd love to hear that story as well. What got you started writing and what made you want to be a writer? Yeah, for sure. So the first thing I'll say is I, I owe my mom a great debt of debt gratitude for, for a million reasons, but in particular, right. relative to the conversation for this, she taught ninth grade English really the whole time I was growing up and eventually became curriculum coordinator and then principal in my old high school. So I really grew up around books just nonstop. It was never forced on me, but I always remember her reading every night, correcting papers into bed. So I was really around it. Um, and whether they were, you know, very, you know, overt efforts or subtle efforts to, to, make me a better writer, but just something that I think came naturally from being around it for an extended period of time where writing was really helpful for me. I'm, I'm very transparent. I'm not a good speaker. I never considered myself a good speaker. My mind gets going really fast. My mouth can't keep up with it. It's, <laughs> it's like Chris Farley and Tommy Boy when he's crushing the bread, right? Um, so, <laughs> uh, that's yeah. me when it comes to speaking. So I've, I've had to make a conscious effort to slow myself down. But what it lent itself to was me recognizing that writing was a much better way for me to articulate various things. And they were also, it was also a great way to wrap your head around them. It's a way to organize your thoughts. And so I, I really wrote more than anything else because it was a way to understand things better and to research things better and to try to grasp them in a way that I thought would help me to teach. And it, it made me a better coach, it allowed me to yeah. utilize analogies more and just understand how to organize my thoughts so I could converse with athletes. And then as time goes on, you evolve your writing style you know, quite a bit just because attention spans have changed over the years. But it was always for me a really <laughs> good way just to, to get my head on straight and, and teach. And, and I think that's the best way to learn is to try to teach something. Yeah, that was always it for me. I always felt compelled to, hey, I've learned this thing. Now I want to teach somebody else, but I couldn't agree more. Like for me, I felt like in a lot of ways it was almost selfish because I felt like I got as much out of it as anybody else would. It's man, I never thought of this thing like that or in this way. And so now by virtue of me going through this, now I can relay it better to the clients and athletes I work with. So I just felt like it made me such a better communicator by doing yeah. that kind of stuff. I look back and I don't even know if internet forums are really even a thing. Like I haven't bothered to look for one in 10, 15 years. Like I, I that was not a productive use of my time after an extended period of time. But I know we were both very active on a number of forums back in the day. And, and a lot of those people became effective writers and published authors. Cosgrove was on there. Yeah. Schuller, guys that were doing really good stuff. Mike Boyle still super active on a forum. So I, I think- yeah. It, you did a lot of writing back then, even if it wasn't published or anything like that. It was just, it was bantering back and forth in a, in a time when the internet was to some degree still in its infancy, but it was a way for us young, enthusiastic coaches to get access to information better because there wasn't like Instagram wasn't around. Twitter wasn't around back then. Like the right. 2000, probably 2000 to 2007 era, there was a lot of information exchanged in those mediums that, that I think helped a lot of us. Like, I was actually talking with Matt Blake, our pitching coach with the Yankees, who was our first pitching coordinator at CSP. And he's like, young guys don't realize how easy they had it. Like it's all out there. Yeah. Like, you had to rate a bookshelf 15 years ago. Now you can just go online. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say the hardest part now, at least for young coaches is accruing the filter yeah. because it's just information overload. And when you see 
30 different people with 30 different solutions to the same problem. It's okay. How do you understand who really knows what they're talking about? Who's had success? Who's just like the flash in the pan that can make a really good reel or TikTok or whatever. That's the hardest part now. It's not like finding the information. It's actually, is this information valuable, pertinent? Is it going to help me improve the training that I'm trying to do? The filter is important. To be honest, I, I actually saw a video this morning. I think it was Steve Young interviewing Tom Brady. And Brady was mm. talking why, about why so many young quarterbacks struggle. And it, it's because, like, he, he, he basically uh, postulated that it's because you have these offensive coordinators who are they're really playing probability. Hey, it's third down and six. They're going to play this defense, so I'm sending this play in. Play in play goes into the quarterback, and it's an entirely different defense then the quarterback has to recalibrate to his probability and do, 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 all these different things. And yeah, I think we realize that there are a lot of young fitness professionals who are staring at a client and they're like, Mike Robertson would do this and Eric Kress would do this and Bill Hartman would do this and <laughs> Luke Wilson would do this. And they're completely overwhelmed. So they actually struggle to, to formulate an opinion of their own. And I, and I think that's something that right. we did better back then, that not in a disparaging way. I think it was just that we had fewer competing demands for our attention, but it was much yes. easier 15 to 20 years ago to come up with your philosophy. And I'm not saying that philosophy I had, I look back at the programs I wrote in 2007, <laughs> they're, they're terrible, but I do right. realize things that we did well and what you didn't do was throw out 80% from one weekend seminar. What you did was you came back, you recalibrated on the one to 2%. Maybe you coached an exercise a little bit differently. Like you didn't stop squatting, but you stopped yelling arch to everybody right. or different right. that made it work. So I just think too often we get people who get exposed to new philosophy and they pivot instantly. And if you're a client or an athlete, you walk in, you're like, so everything we've been doing for the last six months was terrible now. And we're doing this instead. Right. We're just going to pivot. I'd much rather have like our athletes come back from a long season and they, they walk in and they like, Hey, this one's new. Like, why are we doing this? What's different? All this, like when yeah. they see those few things, especially when you have athletes that have been with you for an extended period of time. I love that. I, I worry more about like completely throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, no, I agree. I always tell people don't, I, I want you to think about everything that I present on over a weekend seminar. But don't go back and change everything right away. Take one or two things, start to tweak it. In the background, you can marinate on all these other things and how they might yeah. impact your training or how it might evolve. But don't throw everything out that you've been doing for the last 10, 15, 20 years. It doesn't That's work. So, so here's something else. When I was creating these questions, like one thing I've always admired about you is I felt like you found your voice so early on in the game. So I'm just curious, for starters, would you agree with that statement? Yeah, maybe for some good and for some bad. I think there are yeah. probably times when that led me to be maybe more closed-minded than I should have been. Yeah. So I think there's one thing I've corrected on a lot more is to just try to be very open-minded. Like I I consciously seek out people that maybe they're not contrarians, but they're people that will challenge me. I, I love that about yeah. staff members, about coworkers. I'm super fortunate in both my roles to have people that'll push. I mean, John O'Neill in Massachusetts and Andrew Lissy and Ian Connors and pitching and hitting coaches in Florida. They'll do that. My wife from a business standpoint, my business yeah. partner, a business and manual therapy standpoint. And then with the Yankees, we've got a collection of super smart people across, you know, all the departments. Like it's an opportunity to be like the dumbest person in the room way more often. So I think I embrace that a lot. 
And, and I think where that maybe is, maybe it's a little bit of imposter syndrome, right? Like I, I was the youngest guy ever to speak on the Perform Better Tour. Like I spoke at yeah. in January of 07 when I was 25 years old. And I, I remember Alan Cosgrove came up right after me. He's like, hey, that Eric Cressy kid's pretty smart. Do you think he's ever kissed a girl? And the crowd erupted. <laughs> but yeah. to some degree, I think maybe I projected too much of this is this is right because I said so. And and in hindsight, like that wasn't who I was. Like I, I always prided myself on being like that guy from a small town in Maine that was super approachable and all that. I think that was probably an overcorrection that was maybe a, a fault of mine at a younger age. And, and I've really tried to pivot on it in the years that follow. It's interesting that you say that because something that I firmly believe is that everybody that's a great coach, right? Or people that I consider to be great coaches that have done this for a long period of time, at some point, they doubted themselves, right? As a coach, as maybe not as a human being, but just like, hey man, this is a tough industry. So maybe this kind of dovetails with that, but did you ever deal with that? Because people would look at you now, right? The Eric Cressy, right? Hundreds of thousands of IG followers working for the Yankees. I think it would be great to hear. Did you ever struggle with your confidence as a coach? Yeah, I'll say this. I, honestly, as a coach, no. Like I, I always tell our athletes, like you, you trust your preparation. You're in a great spot, right? Yeah. Like, the people yeah. who don't prepare, those are the ones that that should be really concerned. I think the one thing I think is probably pretty non-negotiable. If you talk to the people, like I've worked with Tony Gentilcore as my roommate for two years. He saw me. Just, <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, I'm going to go to my room and write a book. I'll see you in a couple of days. Like, I, I was that kind of guy. So I yeah. never really had an, a, a problem with working and preparing and all that. And I think a lot of that, honestly, was a function of training as a power lifter. Like, I had no problem flipping the switch, being crazy and, and, and trying to move a lot of weight relative to my body weight. So I think that a lot yeah. of ways that prepared me for everything from running a business to having twins to splitting time between different states and, and being obviously in a very high pressure role where people are calling for my head pretty much on a daily basis. I, I don't sure. mind that at all. I'd say the only time where I, I think there have been doubts is on the financial side of things. Like you, business is tough because, so I invested everything I owned in starting CSP in 2007. You know, I was yep. young, I was naive. I was like, all right, I'll spend $127,000 and because I don't know what else to do with my life. So we did it. And if I put that money in the market, I would have lost half of it the next year and a half when the bottom right. fell out. Instead, I put into a business appreciated, but we grew out of that space in 08. And then in 2012, we jumped to our showcase location, which was a big financial expenditure in Massachusetts. In 14, we opened up in Florida, which was another big financial expenditure. And then we outgrew that space and we built our own building in 2009. So you're 07, 08, 12, 14, 19, and here we are in, in 24 about to make another hefty financial investment. So the the doubt comes in business when you have to really ask yourself, am I bursting at the seams? Is this the right move to, to deliver a better client experience? Is bigger better or is better better? And those right. are the things that you have to weigh is does this expansion improve our client experience? Does it improve my quality of life? Does it take time away from our girls and my wife and all that? So I think those are the places I've doubted myself way more than the X's and O's of training or anything like that. Um, I also just, I, I'm sure you wrestle with this as well as being a parent. Every minute you say yes to somebody else, you say no to your kids. And that's a really hard yes. thing to really align yourself. So when I do those days in October, when all the baseball guys are getting back and I know I've got to do nine evaluations in a day and it's going to absolutely <laughs> 
beat me up and I'm going to get back after bedtime. You can't have too many of those days. You can do them sometimes. So we're here during spring training and I'm, I'm away from my kids for eight days right now just because that's what it takes. So I think that's where the doubt comes in is way more in terms of understanding your opportunity costs, both in terms of time with your family, your financial investment, stuff like that. To me, the training is very easy. If I was just going to go not run a business and I was a single dude in my 40s, I actually don't think I would have a very stressful life at all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, man, there's a couple great points here. First of all, your tolerance to risk in 2007 versus Mm -hmm. 2024, probably a lot different, right? And not to say that the financial numbers aren't growing, but just look, when you're whatever, 20 something, and it's just you, hey, whatever, I'll be all right, versus no, now you've got yourself, Anna, your girls, like there's a lot there, right? There's just a lot more risk involved. So you yeah. have, you're always conscious of that. But it, it's a really interesting way that you answer that because I never thought about it like that. Yeah. If all I had to do was show up and coach people, if people just showed up and my gym and I coach, dude, that would be the easiest job on the planet. How do I do that? <laughs> How <laughs> you know, do I make that happen? I, I would love that. <laughs> yeah, Pete, my business partner, Pete Mass, has always talked about it. He's like, nobody starts a business being like, I can't wait to have 30 employees. No, you can't yeah. wait to build something cool that you feel like you're a huge part of to, to deliver value to the marketplace and all that stuff. But you don't realize that there are going to be days when running that gym is no different than running a restaurant or running an accounting practice or, you know, anything like that. It's, it's, it's very different. And, and to be honest, actually it's, I think it's cool because it's, it's allowed me to nurture a lot of relationships or, you know, friendships across disciplines. There's a, a family down the street who are, they're great friends. And, you know, we have a little like neighborhood gym in our HOA that sometimes if I'm like up early and I just want to get a quick session in, I'll just go work out. And he's often there and he owns like a, like a kitchen slash bathroom remodeling company and like a plumbing surface. We were talking a couple of weeks ago about stuff. Like you just, you can hit it off with anybody who's in entrepreneurship. So I do think there are benefits that come from it. You, you can relate to a different kind of people that you might not otherwise know. If you're enjoying today's podcast and not already subscribed to the Robertson Training Systems newsletter, what are you waiting for? When you sign up, you'll get immediate access to materials that will help you write better programs, motivate people outside of the gym, and improve how your clients move and feel. Plus, the RTS newsletter is the only place where I announce up-and-coming events like virtual summits, live seminars, and my program design mentorship. And last but not least, I hate spam as much as you do, so I will only email you when I've got something valuable to deliver, something that will make you a better athlete, trainer, or coach. So if you're not already subscribed, head over to robertsontrainingsystems.com and register for our newsletter right now, today. Now, that's enough for me. Let's get back into this week's episode. One other thing you mentioned, it was a little bit ago, but I think it's very valuable, is that keeping that open-mindedness as you do this. And I think in some ways it's easier, right? There's a lot of ego. There's a lot of bravado when you're younger. And let's be honest, it's built up. It's a thing in our industry, right? Mm -hmm. That you have to like have this projection of who you are and you know what you're doing. And I think it gets easier to soften that stance as you get older, to be a little bit more open-minded. But yeah, something you said I think is very valuable is trying to surround yourself, number one, with other like-minded individuals in the sense that they want to grow, they want to get better, multidiscipline. So if you're a strength coach, find personal trainers, find massage therapists, rehab professionals, sport performance, like in the sense of like sports specific people, find all those people, but then also find people that will challenge your thinking. Yeah. And I think that's something that you and I can both agree with, right? It can be uncomfortable, 
right? Especially if that's not something that you are comfortable with, but man, it will make you a better practitioner when you get surrounded by other people that think similar, they think similarly, they want to get better, but they're also willing to challenge some of the things that you might hold dear to you. Yeah, it's a balancing act. Because when you start a business, the last thing you want to do when you're one person, you want to go to two, is replicate yourself, right? You compliment mm -hmm. yourself. So when we started up originally, it was like, hey, Pete, can you handle all the managerial stuff? And I'll handle all the technician stuff. And we'll meet in the middle on all the entrepreneurial stuff. As we grew, we did meet people that could replicate me, who could handle some of these tough evaluations yeah. and programs and could really be strong foundational coaches when I'm not there. Because you, you want to set yourself up for never having to work. 90 hour weeks, there has to be a chance to right. crack. So um, I think that part of it is vitally important, but it's, it takes so long to get there. Like I said, you have to go through those, you know, uncomfortable periods of growth. Are we busy enough to justify this move? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one thing that you had mentioned was that you weren't a baseball player. You had some of the shoulder stuff, but we'll come back to that later, but you started coaching a little bit of baseball at mm -hmm. Connecticut. Yeah. Talk to me about how you really got entrenched in the space because yeah. i think that's a story that a lot of people need to hear because a lot of people think oh well, i didn't play that sport how can i be an expert in that sport so talk yeah. to me about your journey just within baseball to start yeah i think i'm big overarching thought is like if you want to build a business solve a problem and, and i didn't know that i was doing that in the moment but when i went to the private sector it just so happened some of the first guys i saw were baseball players and it was basically 2005 to 2007, excuse me, 2006 to 2007 in Massachusetts. And I was lucky. I, I got some high school players. One of them wound up being state player of the year. Um, you know, went 12 and 0 that season. You know, they won a state championship and my phone started ringing off the hook. But even prior to that, I just, you realize very quickly that these were guys that were very underserved. They weren't just weak, which appealed to me as a, as a power lifter. They were positionally weak in, in the spots that mattered, um, which appealed to me as a, a guy with a bum shoulder. And I also thought just in general, they had been caught a little bit too much. I was also lucky. Like one of those guys, I say lucky, it's terrible in hindsight, but he had a stress fracture in his back. So he was in a back brace. So I was like picking up on not just the trends in that, but also understanding like the common injuries that we see in those populations. So I just had a little bit more awareness in there. And, and I think what you realize more often than not is like just by being in those circles, your, your network expands, you meet more and more doctors and physical therapists that are working in that realm. You're motivated to try to find solutions. You're reading journal articles. You're doing whatever you possibly can to be immersed in it. Um, we were lucky we were inside of a baseball facility um, early on. And I think a lot of it has to do with just getting results early on. I think anybody can get results, but I think we got results and, and were willing to step away and make sacrifices in other places to grow the business. And things really took off by leaps and bounds. But the other thing is you've got to prove value. Like we, we trained pro guys for free for a couple of years before we ever thought about charging them. You have to deliver value to, to prove to them that you know, you're actually good. It's very different having someone who wasn't doing this for a living, who's going to drop everything and move across the country to train with you than it is a high school kid who works out down the road. So I think that was a very kind of transformative time when we realized that people were actually relocating just to train with us. So talk to me about that, because I know you've mentioned that before. As a business owner, it's counterintuitive. You're training people for free. How did that yeah. discussion go down? Like, how did that come about? It just happened because okay. I think we agree like early on, like you, you train anybody, and everybody, your programs for family members, sure. you're just trying to get experience and that's yes. where we were. And we had a viable business, so we had the wiggle room to do it. But I think it was just one of those things where it was like one of those, this guy was a roommate of one of our existing clients. <laughs> and you also realized like if you're training a bunch of high school players, your gym's pretty darn empty before 3 p.m. each day. You have all this yes. time to build 
hey, why not take 12 to three and turn it into a, a great pro dynamic and really try to learn in the process. So those athletes were teaching, you know, me far more than I was teaching them in those early years. Right. But, um, you know, it was a couple years in and, um, you know, we, we got some big breaks with some of the, you know, higher level, you know, pro guys in the area that, that were referred to us through agency connections or actually, you know, a doctor that, you know, it would refer guys to us too. So that definitely helped our cause early on, but we never set out to just be the baseball place. It just happened over the course of time. I think I would have been much more calculated in it if I was going to do it over again and I could have done it much faster, but sure. it served us well. I, you know, one thing that I, I've also recognized that may be a good lesson for the, the coaches out there who are starting businesses you want your business to be as sticky as possible, right? So with you, right, guys come in and do their strength addition with you, but they got their skill work on the court right next to them. And maybe they're seeing yeah. Bill for physical therapy or manual therapy yeah. at the same time. Maybe they got a favorite restaurant that's on that same block or something like that. Yeah. If you come to CSP, a lot of guys take part in manual therapy, physical therapy, you know, pitching, hitting, strength conditioning, all of it. Maybe they get nutrition advice there. Maybe they have an analyst on our staff who's, you know, helping them to, plan out how they attack hitters, whatever it is. And then we have a facility where they can do everything in one place where they don't have to hop in the car and drive over town. So it makes your business a little bit more sticky and helps with retention. Um, I think that would have been the avenue I would have picked for growing this faster back in the day is found a way to add extra offerings that would make this place a little bit more sticky on the early end. Mm, I like that. I like <laughs> that. Okay. So another question I have, and it'll tie into what you were just talking about, because Obviously, you were a power lifter, like you pushed some really impressive weights, but you and I were interesting in the sense, and I'm going to put myself in the same category as you, <laughs> but like we were both serious about strength, right? We were talking about strength training, but at the same time, we were like playing both ends of the spectrum, right? Because we're talking about how do we get strong, squat more weight, deadlift more weight, bench press more weight. But on the other side, we're like, hey, but this is how you stay healthy. Yeah. So I would love to hear like what brought those two together for you. For me, it was always about how do I lift weights and not break myself? So that was the two ends and the polarity I was playing with. But what brought you into those two realms as well? Yeah, I'll, I'll say this. I think I took from my powerlifting experience far more of the culture and the energy than I mm. did just the importance of strength. Because we both know, like you go to a high-level powerlifting gym, those guys are all in like debilitating pain all the time. They got cranky yes. shoulders, they're moving them up with red hot and you know, their hips <laughs> are all the time. I took much more of the culture of guys like pushing each other hard and the energy and all that sort of things. Like I wanted to bring that into the private sector with better programming and, you know, and, and good energy. So I think that part of it was really important to me, like relative to this whole concept of strength. Like I think we all agree strength can be protective. Um, obviously yeah. it has you know, significant performance and benefits, particularly early on in an athlete's training career. Like I think in hindsight, and you'd probably agree. Like I thought strong, how strong is strong enough was a much higher bar for lack of yeah. better. Time. Yeah. You realize now more often than not that there, there are some guys who are actually shockingly weak competing at the highest level and staying healthy doing so because they get, so they're successful by a different avenues and things like that. I'm not, I'm not advocating being weak or anything like that. I'm just advocating right. being understanding of how different athletes have different strategies for accomplishing great movement. I mean, I think we obviously look at narrow versus wide infrastructure angle. We see athletes that are very muscularly driven versus fascially driven. Um, yep. I, I think, you know, we, we can batch athletes better than we ever have before, but seeing a lot of really hypermobile guys that can do crazy things with their bodies that aren't nearly strong enough relative to our expectations that have made a lot of money playing professional baseball. So I, I think I'm better now than I ever was 15 years ago of meeting athletes where they're at. 
The other one too, that I think has been very transformative for me. I'm using that word a lot on this podcast, but, um, just how I deal with aging athletes. And you know, for me, aging yes. is probably over age 33. Typically, if an athlete's gotten to that age, they've had some career success. If you're not good by 33, yeah. you're probably not still employed as a professional athlete. But yeah. I've been fortunate to work with some really good ones that have sustained onto the, the back half of their 30s. And, and I've learned so much from those athletes. And I think a lot of it ties in with some of the different things we've looked at with just how the fascial system changes over a course of time and how ligamentous laxity goes down and just... You see some very different things in those populations, but I'm, I'm always shocked at how easily strength sticks around for those athletes. They can tickle it once a month and it's there. Two sets of four every five to six weeks can get them what they need to be. Like, And, and 2020 was actually a really defining year for us because we had all these athletes that trained with us. Pandemic happens. They had only been gone for three weeks. They came back from a full off season. And we're like, all right, what do we do? And you know, some of these guys were here for a couple months with us once the gym opened back up and they played a 60 game season. So most of them were basically gone July 1st until early October. Some played a little bit longer in yeah. the postseason, but we had guys that walked back in and they were trap or deadlifting like 500 for five on the first day of the off season. And so am I, all right, what do we do? And for those guys, <laughs> we, we basically trained like athletes way more that off season. We used Proteus a ton. We threw the med ball extra. We sprinted. We changed direction. We jumped. We bounded. We, you know, skater jumps, all that stuff. We, we integrated a ton more rotational patterning in our programs and saw some of the best velocity increases we've ever seen. And not only that, just guys that around like December, January, when the throwing volume really started to ramp up, there weren't as many aches and pains. And, and some of it was sure that these guys had like just a down year in terms of volume. They didn't get beaten up nearly as bad. Sure. But I do think that we're stumbling onto some things by accident and, and they've been very big difference makers for us in the years that followed, particularly some of those guys that were there that are still with us now four yeah. years later. Like we realized that same level of strength is present, like when they come back each year. So you really need a good month to get their strength reserve where it needs to be. And then you can focus on a lot of the other qualities at the same time. Dude. I love that. I was literally just talking about this the other day and you know this as well, but like the young developing athlete, totally different monster, right? Yeah. You're trying to teach them how to develop intensity. You're trying to build some of those base physical qualities, but especially with these older athletes that have had success, like you alluded to their late twenties, thirties, late thirties. It's all about, I just call it touching intensity, right? Yeah. You just got to touch it every now and then, right? You don't have to demonstrate it and they don't want to like you lift heavy weights long enough at some point. I remember Joe Ken told me years ago, he's oh, there's just days I just don't want to squat or deadlift heavy. And I remember thinking like, what? And yeah. now, yeah, no, I get it. There's just some days you don't want to pick something heavy up. Yeah, it's so, frustrating. Touching I, intensity. Yeah, I still love lifting. I don't, I, I've had one orthopedic surgeon. I had a meniscus repair in January of 2021. And I bounced right. back from great. My knee's awesome. Except when I pick up over 550 pounds, it's, it's mm. it was actually a reminder. Of, this is why being morbidly obese is not healthy. Like people don't right. walk around weighing 700 pounds because it hurts their joints. And the one thing my knee hates is really heavy loading. It just mm. it's, it's just yelling at me. Don't be stupid. And I'm like, all right, I can right. make 495 and just move it fast. That's okay. I'm not going to waste away. Yeah. My like, my wife and kids will still love me. My business won't fail if I don't get it <laughs> anymore. But that was like a very I guess, eye-opening um, experience for me, just having to go through it myself. But um, yeah, I'm 42 now, so I, I don't lift quite as heavy as I used to. I still have a lot of fun in the weight room. I'm still there all the time, but the focus has definitely shifted a little bit. Yeah, I think the primary emphasis right now is to be able to run up and down a soccer field with Kendall, kick yep. a soccer ball, 
throw BP and or yep. throw the ball to my dog about a thousand yep. times because he never <laughs> wears out. It's like the goals just shift and evolve, right? It's, it's true. We're just It's really just pulling the parachute. I'm trying to descend a little bit slower, make sure I can go back to playing tennis in retirement, whatever that day comes. I love it. I love it. Okay, so another thing that we talked about and alluded to was you had the shoulder stuff when mm -hmm. you were younger, and obviously that sucks, right? Impacts your ability to play tennis. I know it impacted your ability to like bench press sometimes and back squat. But how do you think that was a silver lining when you got into the world of baseball? That's a blessing in disguise because the injury mechanisms are very similar, right? It's it's your classic yeah. internal impingement, external rotated, abducted, kick serve. Like being back in that position is not a great spot for the underside of your rotator cuff or your your posterior superior labrum. For me, it taught me a lot about just the injury mechanisms that, that overhead athletes encounter. And it's been helpful for us, not just in baseball, but also with our tennis guys and our swimmers and we see volleyball players we see nfl quarterbacks you name quarterbacks it. So yeah a lot of those things will carry over across a lot of different populations but i think also just understanding why rehab programs failed for me i look mm. back why was so just to give you back I, I rehab for literally like 18 months with this really like all yeah. the way through senior in high school and then came back to i stepped away from tennis during college a lot but it got really bad late in college while i was still like working at a tennis club on the side and basically gone through rehab the whole summer between my undergrad and my graduate startup. And we basically agreed in late August of, of 2003 that I was going to come back and have surgery on the first day of my winter break. So basically just deal with a bum shoulder for your whole first semester and then be in a sling for a couple of weeks and then go back and you should be good to go where, you know, you can actually write and all this stuff. And I just was like, all right, well, I got this kind of four month period where I can just try a bunch of different things and found a good ART guy down the, down the street who worked on me, adjusted my training a ton and really just locked it in and I called and canceled my surgery on Halloween. I mean, literally two months later, I was in a great spot. So one, it, it talked yeah. about this idea of an eight week magic mark is if you really lock things in for eight weeks, if you're not doing well, then maybe it's time to, to advance this to a more you know aggressive intervention, like a surgery or something like that. But I think also for me, I, I, it made me really wonder why I had failed rehab or if rehab had failed me. I had no manual therapy as part of it. There was no discussion of how to modify my training. Like I would still back squat. I would still try to overpress. So I would try to do things that would flare me up. And there really was no consistent awareness of what was happening outside of the gym or the rehab clinic. Like I was going and working at a tennis club. I was basically yeah. trying to play tennis. Like you can do all the exercise in the world, but if you're, you know, if you've got a headache and you keep banging your head against the wall, <laughs> it's going to get better. So looking back, it made me realize that you have to control for way more variables and you have to be exhaustive in the way that you approach things. And you also, you look at a lot of physical therapy clinics, right? It's six patients, one physical therapist. It's, it's not a great business model. I understand the nature of insurance and all that stuff. A lot of bad reps slip through the cracks and that's probably in one part, you know, why I didn't get better. So that, that taught me a lot. And it's something that's really, I think, framed our business, my approach to managing over athletes to this day, just because you're you talk about shoulder, you talk about elbow, you're working with a very tight window of what is and isn't acceptable. It's not like a hip where you can just get away with a lot over an extended period of time. Like you're working in a really finely controlled area. Yeah, dude, I've never heard you explain it like that. Very cool. The other thing that I think is interesting is just when you're talking about like these different constraints, but also talking about how Within your training program, there's so many different avenues and so many different screws you can turn, right? Mm -hmm. Especially now, you were just thinking training, but there's yeah. training, nutrition influence, recovery. You talked about ART, but maybe it's sleep, maybe yeah. it's mindset, visualization. We're so much more broad 
in our scope as to how we can address these things now. Again, when we were starting out 20 years ago, right? It was basically, hey, let's maybe not do dumb stuff in the gym. Let's get ART and see what happens. But yeah. now all the things that we have access to, man, we can really dive in. And I love that idea of an eight week magic mark. I've yeah. not heard that before, but it gives you a really good time to try some conservative interventions. And yeah. then, okay, this isn't working. Now maybe we go to plan B. I think you outlined that there's so many different things that can contribute to success or failure. I think what it underscores the most is the need to listen to, to people, to ask a ton of questions, to really pry. Um, I can't tell you, I've lost track of how many teenage athletes with significant musculoskeletal issues have failed to disclose that they're on Accutane. Like mm, significant, yeah. you know, potential musculoskeletal side effects. Dermatologists prescribe it. It's a very sensitive subject. Teenagers don't want to talk about their acne. So very rarely sure. they're listed on a health history or it's an athlete you've already been training and they start a course of it once they've already been working with you. And all of a sudden it's, it's a left wrist that hurts. And then it's a right shoulder and then it's a right knee. And then it's like diffuse low back stuff. And you're like, are you over? Are you just overtrained? Like you change your mattress? What happened? You right. got crazy with a coach that was running you to the ground. I, and I can't tell you how many times that snuck up on me. And frankly, like parents beat themselves up about it because it very rarely is discussed because usually the greater good is getting these kids less sensitive or not, not sensitive, but you know, their self-esteem is really heavily impacted by having some yes. concerns. So it may be the greater good for some of these kids because they do one course of it and then they can move on afterwards. But it's, it's right. one of those things like I've learned to ask, check vitamin D levels, all these different things. I, I think I'm just more aware of prying than I ever have before. And early in my career, I probably assumed too much and didn't listen for long enough. So yeah. I think there's a lot more of an inquisitive component to the onboarding. I want to know what's worked, what hasn't, what's made you feel better, what didn't. Like talk to me about your previous experience with training. What have you been doing? Because sometimes you, you look like the smart guy simply because you have the benefit of hindsight. What didn't work before you came to me? Man. Okay. So first off, if you're listening, this is like the third or fourth time in recent memory that this topic has come up. And Derek Hansen was actually talking about it with the Achilles stuff mm -hmm. and how many Achilles issues are potentially driven by some of this. So, hey, yeah. if you're working with teenage kids, the Accutane is maybe something you need to be asking about. That's great. The other point that you made that I think is incredibly important is being willing to ask questions and trying to put the person at ease, right? You're not trying to like make them uncomfortable, but like you're really trying to figure out, okay, what are all the different aspects? What are all the different things that are going on with you? And I always try and help them understand or let them know, hey, this is a safe space. Like the only reason I'm asking these questions because the more information I have, the more I can help you. And so when you let them know that, it lowers their resistance and their threshold a little bit. And hopefully you can get more honest feedback from it. I no doubt about it. I think pro athletes are actually notorious at, uh, about under-reporting injuries. Like you hand them a help. Yes. They have out. so many. Right. And they, yeah, there's that. And they're just sick of filling out paperwork. They're <laughs> they got to go through all, all the onboarding. It's a barrage. When you come into spring training and baseball, it's vision, it's dental, it's EKG, it's blood, it's urine. It's oh you know, gosh, everything. Yeah. And it's obviously all the Q and A's and stuff like that. There's so many different layers to it that you, they're just tired of it. So they skim over stuff. And sometimes they, they can not report something that's, hey, if you're a type one diabetic and you don't tell me, that's a really big deal. <laughs> right. Uh, beyond just the fact that you could die on our training for if you took too much insulin, like it increases your risk of frozen shoulder. If you have a surgery, there's a lot of layers to this. And I, I, to the athletes, I know you, the best thing you can do is over communicate. Yeah, for sure. 
So one thing that I really enjoy is getting people's long-term perspective on training, health, and performance, especially somebody like you, been in the space 20 plus years now. You're working with some of the most elite athletes, not just in sport, but in the world. So I would love to hear you describe like your current philosophy or approach to keeping the athletic shoulder healthy. Like if you had to give me your position statement right now, what would it be? Yeah, there are parts of it that evolved and parts that haven't. So, so what I'll say first is that I don't think this is specific to shoulders, but sports at, in every single capacity are played at higher levels than ever before, right? I sat second row at the U.S. Open for one of our pro tennis guys. Like watching guys serve 150 is insane to me. They've even made the, the tennis balls a little bit heavier on tour. So we're seeing like an increase in shoulder and elbow stuff in, in that world that is oh, yeah. very openly discussed. In baseball, average fastball velocity has gone up every year for 20 plus years. The game has just played at such high levels. You know, NFL, it's a car accident on every single play. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. the Achilles and all this different stuff is just that people are pushing the limits of human performance so high right now that sports medicine is literally just trying to keep up. So what I always come back to is like we're seeing anterior dislocations in throwing shoulders. Like That was usually something that you saw in a rugby collision. But we're seeing guys that right. are too saucy on a, on a weighted ball program. They, they literally dislocate their shoulder anteriorly. Um, I think the concerning part is also that it's happening really young. Like some of the studies, yeah. on, you know, there was a study on Japanese asymptomatic 12-year-old elbows. Like over 60% of them already had UCL damage. And that was asymptomatic kids. That didn't even include the ones that actually hurt. So I think it, this is a multi-pronged discussion. So I'll speak with it as best as I can to dumb it down to any injury. I think every injury is a difference between load and capacity. And if we understand that dynamic, we can always break things down further. From a capacity thing, like there has to be time to achieve a training effect, right? And that could be everything from tissue extensibility to tissue strength, elasticity. It could be the, the, the actual density of the tissue. I think we're seeing better and better research in the fascial community about what that means as well. And then certainly the load is something that we have to manage. And those two things are remarkably interwoven. And I think what we're seeing right now across sports is that the load on athletes is higher than ever before because there's more opportunities to play, to compete, particularly at younger ages. And at the same time, there's less and less training time that enhances capacity. So what we're doing is we're, we're really just shifting the balance on the seesaw in potentially the wrong direction. And, and so what we're now seeing is we're seeing young athletes who develop structural defects at a young age. Um, and what we're hearing about is when they turn you know, 23 or 24, something like that, they get to these higher levels, the speed of execution on everything goes up and eventually that structural limitation becomes a problem. So in the baseball world, what happens, you have, a, you have an ulnar collateral ligament. It's basically a small ligament on the inside of your elbow that keeps your hinge as a hinge. And when you lay your right. arm back, it, there's medial gapping on your elbow. And what we see very commonly are kids have low grade injuries to this when they're young, they're still learning how to throw, they go out and they make a 90 pitch outing in Little League or something like that. And they don't necessarily notice it, but they're actually laying down calcification on the ligament that eventually becomes a point of weakness. They get bigger, they get stronger. Two years of college training conditioning and they're throwing 94 and the ligament goes and they go in and Sure enough, there was an existing level of calcification that was there. The problem, though, is that used to happen at 24, 25, 26. Yeah. Now we're seeing 15-year-olds that are having Tommy John. I've seen it in a 12-year-old, which is astounding to me. Oh, my gosh. And, and it's very debated in the industry, like how long the useful life of an elbow. I don't think anybody would say it's more than 10 years, though. Like, it's 
probably more in the ballpark of eight to 10 because the native ligament is always gonna be stronger than the, re the reconstruction. Now we're seeing hybrid procedures where they do an internal brace on top of that reconstruction. But you have these guys that are now, you know, we have multiple guys that, I, that we work with who have had two Tommy Johns, like where they're just, they're running out of graft sites that you can take from. There are a few guys that have had three. So it's a very oh strange world when kids are blowing out that young. And baseball is probably the most extreme example. It's very different than like an ACL or just like someone who pulls a hamstring or something like that. This is a small ligament that has to go through a really significant biological process of ligamentization where that tendon has to become a ligament. It's 14 months on the shelf for your first Tommy John, usually about 16 for your second. Sports medicine just can't keep up with, with the injuries that are taking place. But to, to dumb it down to the most minute way to look at it is loading capacity are, are imbalanced independent of how a shoulder moves bad things are going to happen now if we want to make capacity better we find a, an element of neutrality in the shoulder right we get excuse me adequate thoracic spine mobility we get adequate scapular upper rotation we learn to keep the ball in the socket i'll give you one one fast one that i think is something that you can carry over across different disciplines i was actually talking about this with our director of pitching yesterday I think posterior tilt, both at the hip and the shoulders, is the biggest unlock uh, in terms of movement in the body, right? We know if you take mm -hmm. a heavy extension bias athlete, you find posterior tilt, good things are going to happen. Even if they're like a raging left AIC, they're, they're out of whack. If you get them right sagittally, there will be a trans, there will be a downstream effect to frontal and transverse plane. I think with the shoulder, sure. it's the absolute truth. If you can find just a little bit of posterior tilt, it's, it's a total unlock for athletes. They get cleaner external rotation. They don't default to anterior tilt in place of internal rotation. When it comes to upper the rotation, if you have someone who's really anteriorly tilted, it's so far to posteriorly tilt and then rotate around the rib cage that they'll oh, just yeah. throw this, like, especially older adults, they'll throw this shrugging pattern at you. They don't have a, 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 a chance in hack at like trying to actually get to serratus. So I just think in general, like if you're stuck, maybe a bad pun there, but Treat a pec minor, treat a coracal breakout, treat a short head of the biceps, find a little bit of posterior tilt, teach them what it actually is. Because we see a lot of athletes, they think they're giving that little tilt and instead what we get is we get this aggressive scapular depression from the lat that comes with yes. big lumbar extensor tone. Or we get rhomboids firing up and we get almost like this military posture. Those guys that have that crazy upper back compression, oh, yeah. they got like barnacles growing on their rhomboid. Like you go and you do a <laughs> upper back expansion, you you treat rhomboids, whatever it is, they feel like completely different people. So I think posterior tilt just fixes so much. And that's what I've been getting into what we're talking about the hips. There's, there's yeah. a short a bit for today. No, I love it. I love it. And just to jump off your idea of these young kids having the Tommy Johns, I know they do a lot of MRIs like at the NBA combine and they're telling like the things that I've heard are guys that are 19, 20 years old are showing up with knees that look like guys in their mid to late twenties. Insane. right because there's yeah. just so much volume right it's yeah. not just the high school season it's aau and if they're not playing aau there's this thing called june ball that they do here where yeah. they'll go in on a day they'll go and play four games right yeah. and they'll do that two or three times a week so like you said the load is just massively outpacing the capacity and then they wonder why they feel beat up and hurt all the time and, and the irony is think about what you're eating if you're playing four games a day i know because i was around for sure day. You're drinking sugar water all day. That's basically, Absolutely. maybe you have a bar if you're lucky. You're not eating real meals. And you talk about, like, I remember hearing, like, the Dwight Howard stories, Chris Paul. Like, and I don't oh, follow yeah. the NBA super closely, but, like, nutrition is beyond transformative in the NBA. Like, we've, oh, yeah. I think Mark Cuban was the first one that really pushed it hard. And now everybody's 
through my role, like we've toured multiple NBA facilities. We have great rapport with you know, guys like Art Horn and Todd Wright, like guys who are doing great stuff. And like nutrition is extremely front and center in the NBA. And then you, yeah. you go to these other levels and it's, no, I'm just going to, I'm going to drink sugar all day and play pickup for eight hours today. And I'll get to the weight sometime down the road. It doesn't happen. I, I wish more people would recognize what like the highest level guys have actually done to get where they go. If the average like 16 year old kid like actually came in and saw what some of our like Cy Young award winners do on a daily basis, like they'd walk in and be like, you know what? There isn't a single thing you did today that would get a like on Instagram. Like it's boring and no. it's mundane, but you do it every single day. Like you're willing to do the mind numbing, boring stuff that, that sets you up for a long-term success. So I think that's one of the best things about a place like yours, maybe on a smaller level, a place like ours where you've got high school, college pros all under the same facility and a high school kid can see what an MLB player does or a Cy Young award winner player does. And you're like, holy crap. Like you said, it's not sexy. It's not exciting, but they show up. They do all their foam rolling resets, mobility work. They get a good training session in. They're doing the best stuff outside of the gym to take care of their body. It's not exciting, but they do it every day, every off season. And just those small wins stacked up over months, years, decades allows them to have that kind of long-term success. Yeah, small hinges swing big doors. That's yes. Pat Rickyism, and I, oh, I, I was going to say that's an Eric Cressy. I always hear that uh, one out of you. you no, know, it's funny. Uh, I think I stole it from Pat, but our staff wears me out about it. I say that way too much. <laughs> it's become a Cressyism. So credit to yeah. Pat in the public. Forum. Okay, <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, one more, and then we'll start to wrap this up. What was something you thought you knew about shoulders early on that you've had to evolve as your years have gone? Chasing humeral extension. I, I stayed away with it from it for a long time. I, I think we were always really concerned that throwers had very loose anterior capsules, which they do. So, yeah. so effectively what happens with a thrower is as they acquire more and more extra rotation, the, the glenohumeral ligaments in the front of the joint kind of give. So you create this anterior glide and when they get too loose, you can wind up with chronic biceps tendinopathy because the biceps tends to work hard. You can irritate the cuff. You can tear the ligaments themselves. So what we see is over the yeah. course of aging throwers, like those ligaments are less like a trampoline. They become more like thick tissue paper where eventually there's mm. a puncture. So we, we always were really cautious about protecting against humeral anterior glide that took place, not just with extra rotation, but also with shoulder extension. Anytime the elbow goes behind the body, the humerus is going to sure. glide forward in the joint. So that, that influenced how we coach rows and think about getting out and around as opposed to just back. But what I think it did do was it made me very reluctant to like actually check what shoulder extension range of motion was. And what it probably mm-hmm. led me to miss out on was a lot of the benefits of like the crab position, like crab position, breathing, like great opportunity to chase some anterior expansion for someone who's compressed front to back. Yeah. So I think that's been a good one. It's actually like a sneaky good way to teach a little bit of scapular posterior tilt if you do it really well. I think I would have been less resistant to actually checking and potentially even chasing a little bit more humeral extension in certain guys because it is emotion. Even if you're not going to load it like crazy, they should preserve. So I think we had some guys that probably got stiff in that realm and, and maybe developed some downstream consequences that weren't as favorable. Yeah. One of the things that I feel like I always come back to is that maybe you're not going to load all of these different things, but for the most part, I want people to have access to those ranges of motion. 
right? That's when you really get in trouble. And so I know like somebody will say to me, oh, basketball player, they'll never do this on a court. Right. Okay, great. But what happens if they ever get forced into it, right? Or they lose capacity somewhere else now, right? Now the same structure, the same tissues constantly getting overloaded. I feel like that's when things really get gnarly. Yeah, I think you're buying amplitude. And you think about it. How, yeah. all right, so let's go back. Let's, I'm turning the tables. I'm interviewing now. All right, 2010, how is Mike Robertson managing femoral last tabular impingement, even if it's asymptomatic? Yeah. Oh, man. How am I chasing it now versus, oh, yeah, we just yeah, stretch not, and maybe do some activation so drills. Yeah. yeah. You're just working around it and trying to control the femoral head with good glute activation. Maybe using yeah. a band for posterior glides. It's all well and good. And now that guy's a wide infrasternal angle. We need to chase some sacral counter nutation. We're hopping him on a slant board. We're deep squatting him. We're cross connecting. We're doing all these things that would have been vilified 13, 14 years. Credit to Bill for opening Absolutely. a lot of people's eyes with this stuff. But you realize yeah. that we were probably contraindicating stuff in a bunch of people that had asymptomatic findings on imaging. 80% <laughs> of football players have FAI. It's 100% of NHL players. You're not going to yeah. contraindicate an entire group of people from squatting deep. So it's all about the load and how you program it and all that. But we've seen some good benefits just from being willing to go back and revisit some of these things. There's a lot of nuance. And I think that's one yeah. thing you learn over the years. Is instead of just throwing an entire activity out, you realize, yeah. okay, what constraints do I have? How can I modify it? How can I make it functional? I'll just put that in air quotes for this person, yeah. right? So that ultimately they get a positive training effect from it. Absolutely. Cool. Okay. I know you're pressed. So I've got five lightning round questions. Let's do it. And then I'll let you go. Okay. Perfect. Number one, this is just more of a statement, but damn, dude, your girls are getting big. The, the <laughs> picture from a week or two ago is like, holy crap, those kids are big. <laughs> you're telling me. You know, and they're, uh, I actually got a, a text from my wife yesterday. They were at the gym with her, and there was a video of our nine year old twins. Trap bar deadlifting with the 10 pound bumpers on each side. I was like, all right, this yeah. is, we're getting there now. So they're all it's in, in the on, blood. Yeah, they're all in and on gymnastics. Softball are probably the top two. We got a little bit of dance in there. They played soccer. They weren't big on soccer, which is a little bit of a bummer, but yeah. So we're, we're feeling out as we go. We got a, a four year old in T ball now, too. The gymnastics foundation really yeah. sets the stage. They can do anything after that. Yeah. One of my I best soccer I'm, girls. Yeah. Go ahead. I will say I'm a little nervous about the long term of gymnastics. Just oh you know, yeah, you never know, competitive. Great, but just so many of the teenage girls, like their oh, wrist yeah. braces, they all have the patellar tendon sleeves. They're re- a lot of strip spondies. I worry yeah. a little bit more about like selling out for it once they get so young. Like I'd rather see it be part of a big developmental plan, but it's gonna be tough if they, they fall at that level. A thousand percent. That was always my thought. Was like, yeah. hey. We're going to do this for the general roundedness, spatial awareness, athleticism, but never like performance gymnastics, if you will. Yeah. It's crazy to me too, like how quickly it escalates to, I thought it was cool when they did the cartwheel and now they're doing like flips off bars and doing just crazy stuff. I'm like, what? <laughs> but that wasn't there last week. That's where it gets a little crazy. So we have two balance yeah. beams in our living room and we have bars in place of the dining room table now. So oh, life, nice. is, life is speeding up on us. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Number two, as we're recording this, you are at spring training. What are your goals for the next couple of weeks, man? Yeah, spring training. So actually, maybe the best way I can describe it is to describe what a major league organization is to folks. It's different than any other professional sport because there are so many players. So if you look at like major league rosters, 180 players domestically. So think about six teams of 30 players a piece. 
plus your 26 man major league roster. So that's 206 players that are allowed domestically. You can carry 90 guys at your, your Dominican Academy. So 296. And then any oh athletes gosh. that are placed on the full season or 60 dial don't count towards that number. So you, you may have over 300 in your organization. And looking at us, like we have, obviously New York is our major league affiliate. We have our double A and triple A teams, both within about an hour of our stadium and our trip, excuse me, our double A and our high A teams are within an hour. Our triple A teams a couple hours away. And then we have our low A team, which is in Tampa across the street from our player development complex. And then we have our Dominican Academy. So fortunately they're all in the same time zones, but they're very small. Yeah. So what it speaks to my role in a, in a director of player health and performance, the number one thing that I can do is provide a vision and basically educate teach our coaches what I value as important, be available to them as a resource, be an advocate for them for whatever they may need, things like that. So if I try to work with every single athlete every single day, I will fail miserably just because there are so many yeah. guys. So this week, and, and we're actually right in the middle, our, our pitchers and catchers all reported last week, and tomorrow is the, the official report date for all the position players. It's like speed dating. So we'll carry a little <laughs> over 70 guys in major league camp, and you've got to get to know a lot of them. You probably know 55 of them, and then there are 20 guys that you may not have ever interacted with. So those players come in and they do, like I said, blood work that we scrutinize. They do EKGs. They do movement screens, more classic PT evals that maybe strength tests and range of motion assessments, all that. So it's a total barrage of stuff, jump on force plates, all that stuff. So there's a lot to unpack. And our, our skill coaches are also learning these guys, understanding what the, the spin axis on their four seams are. We're looking at them on high-speed cameras. It's a lot, man. So I so can't even imagine, because, dude. Yeah, the number one goal is, is obviously to gather as much information as possible to identify any guys that might be at risk of getting hurt, particularly this is the time of year when injuries are the highest just because you have so many players that are all coming from different places to one spot and the workload spikes on them. So we, we scrutinize that really closely. We've been fortunate this year to have a lot of guys who have been at our complex training for an extended period of time now. So we're not like getting them all cold turkey, but there are some players that roll in each day and you got to, like I said, speed date them on the fly. So number one goal for, for now is to have a gradual onboarding of volume and skill variants and stuff like that, that, that prepares us for opening day at the end of March. Yeah. One of the things that always overwhelms me when I talk to guys like you, NBA, NFL, it's just all the data streams. Yep. So many data streams, man. It's yep. dude. It's fun. If you like, I'm, I'm, I was going to be an accountant. So I love numbers. I love nerding out. Yeah, me too. Do a lot of really advanced medical grading stuff and things like that. So my role is like a fringe it's a crossover between obviously like a, an in-person strength edition coach and collaborating with performance science, amateur scouting, sports medicine, pro scouting, communicate with our front office on a, on a variety of different initiatives. So it's cool. If you like to have something new to do each day, that keeps it really interesting. So um, yeah. it's, it's a lot of data. You're right. I, I love it. Okay. Serious question. How do you do all the things? P, Yankees, husband, father, like how on earth do you do it all? Yeah. I, the first thing I'll say is there are sacrifices, no doubt about it. Like I, I miss some of my daughter's games and things like that. I think it's just one of those things where Anna, my wife and I have sat down and we've discussed what's important to us. What are the boundaries? What are the non-negotiables and all this? But there, there have been a lot of sacrifices. I think what is helpful about my Yankees role versus my CSP role is they are perfectly offset. So as an example, yeah, that's when, we, true. when we lost in the American League Championship and in 2022, my wife was actually at the game when we lost and she had a flight booked the next morning for 5.45. So after we lost, I, I booked a flight on that airplane. We flew out together and I was back coaching at the facility the next day at 10.45 a.m. 
Like it was just one of those things wow. where it was like, go right back to it. And partially that's, that's therapeutic. You know, your season ends on a, on a note that you didn't want it to. So you can get right back to work and start taking your mind off it. We are perfectly offset where the facility is very busy in the off season. And then the facility, the, the in-season role is very busy on the major league side while the facility is a little quieter. Pete and John really run Massachusetts and do an amazing job up there. I have a really strong presence there, um, but we are back up there in the summertime, which is a place that I do pop in on. But at the end of the day, the reason it works is amazing people that, that work yeah. with me. Everything from a wife to business partners to great staff members, transformational employees that understand how to lead their departments. And I think in years past, I've probably gotten away too much and micromanaged people. And I think over the years, I've, I've tried to get much better about just tell them, hey, I'm an advocate for you. Let me know how I can help. But I, I trust you guys to spread your wings. Go do it. Yeah, I love it. Okay, what's your best piece of advice for a young up-and-coming coach? You got to find mentors. And the most important thing I would say is those mentors are not going to be right down the street. You have to be willing to sacrifice, to travel, to go and do stuff. I wish I had, I was lucky. I did have a guy locally who, who took me under my wing when I was going through some health problems and I'm very appreciative of, of his name's Daryl Conant. He was to this day was life-saving for me in a lot of ways, but I really, I didn't spread my wings till I got to grad school and I was three and a half hours away from home. So I think internships are like vitally important, not just because they they expose you to good mentors or they get you academic credit, like they get you reps. And it's so hard to yeah. get reps on your own, short of volunteering to train your cousins and your, your old teammates and stuff like that. Like an internship is an amazing opportunity to just go and get a thousand reps to stumble a little bit and figure out why a coaching cue didn't work, why you weren't able to get through to an athlete and you just get better and better at it. So I, I think it takes way more than 10,000 hours, if I'm being honest. Like I Agreed. still find myself finding better ways to communicate. Uh, so yeah, get go out, get a great internship and, and find really good mentors. And, and I want to be very clear. It's not a mentorship over email. It's not a yeah. graduate course. I'm not saying those things are bad, but too often people expect like someone to just drop everything and answer every question they have over email. Yeah, they can teach you way more if you're willing to make sacrifices and be around them on a regular basis. Because in many cases, they're trying to teach multiple people at the same time. If I do an in-service, I don't want to do a one-on-one -on -one in-service. This is an amazing experience because you guys, you're going to have thousands of people to listen to this podcast, right? So there's a yeah. trickle-down effect. If I just get Joe Smith from down the street who wants to talk about strength conditioning, I talk to him, that's not useful. So a lot of times there are academic supervisors and, and professors in college that send guys out to do like career papers and things like that. And you're probably the same. I get it, probably 10 of those requests a week. Yeah. Uh, like they want to just come by and chat and stuff like that. And I'm totally fine with them coming by the facility and seeing things and all that stuff. But it's just so hard to try to give everybody 30 minutes, especially when a lot of people yeah, absolutely. Well, with great questions. If you can be yeah. succinct in your ass, something like that, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll always answer you. I'll give you a you know a quick email reply. But when there's, hey, what's your philosophy? <laughs> like, do you want to hear 2007, 2017, 2027? Right. I think it'll be like, those are the ones right. that are hard. I don't mean to come across as like apathetic to the future of the profession, but I do think the best coaches out there are the ones that are willing to sacrifice and go out and find those opportunities. Look, let's reiterate something you said earlier. Every time you say yes to something else, you're saying no to your family. And I don't, it's, I think that's hard to understand when you're 20 or 21 years old. Cause yeah. I've had to have those same discussions. I would love to help you, but yeah. if you're going to come in and do it like on rest periods while I'm coaching, <laughs> don't ask to let's go have a cup of coffee for an hour. I'm like, and that would be great, but I don't even have time to go have a cup of coffee with my friend I for an hour, let alone somebody I've never met. 
515 while I'm racing to get work done before my daughters wake up. That's exactly um, it's, again, it's not, I love it. it's not in any way apathy to the future of the industry. There's great things happening out there. It's a great place to get educated, but you just got to find the right path to find the information and find good mentors yeah. and find good mentors. Okay. Last but not least, number five, for a guy that's done it all, man, what's next for Eric Cressy? The, the answer during spring training is always win a world championship. It should be the answer year round as well. So we get some, some very important irons in the fire to, to get going with that. And then obviously on the business side of things, like I said, we have some pretty big expansions. So it's going to be quite a few meetings with contractor, right? Writing some bigger checks than probably ever have had to, <laughs> um, but hopefully all with a, you know, a successful outcome in mind and to make the product better for our athletes. I love it, dude. Man, it's always so great catching up with you. Every time I'm like, damn, it better not be another fill in the blank. It better not be another year before I talk to Eric because it's always amazing. And I appreciate you coming on, dude. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work you're doing? Sure. EricCressy.com is just like the, the web page. And then social media, I'm pretty much at Eric Cressy on Twitter and Instagram. And then probably thing that might intrigue him the most is the podcast, uh, maybe some similar genres to what you're talking about. Maybe a yeah. little bit more of a baseball focus. We step back and take the 30,000 foot view on some sports medicine stuff and things like that. That's the, the yeah. elite baseball development podcast. Perfect. I'll make sure I get all the links in the show notes so you can find it easily. And again, Eric, thank you so much, brother. It was great having you on. My pleasure. Always good catching up and I appreciate you having me. All right, my friends, that does it for this week's episode with Eric Cressy. Really hope you enjoyed it. Man, the guy is just a wealth of knowledge, but I think that really does him a disservice because, yeah, I could get Eric on. We could talk X's and O's, and we've talked about maybe doing some side projects where we just do that. Talk X's and O's, talk coaching. But, man, I think my favorite part of this episode with just hearing about his evolution, not just as a coach and as a trainer, but just in his mindset in his approach to being more open-minded, to seeking out different opinions. And I think the best coaches, the best trainers want to be challenged. And I think that's something we can all walk away from this episode with. You need to be challenged, whether you're somebody at Eric's level or you're somebody that's new that's seeking out mentors. And I also loved how he mentioned, hey, the best mentors probably don't live down the street. They don't live on your block. They may not even live in your city. You may have to go somewhere else to seek them out to really learn from them, but they can be life-changing experiences. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please do me a small favor. If you're not already subscribed to the show, go and do that right now. iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now and hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.